Good afternoon, Noon Shadow Hills. Uh, it's Bob Furring again. And you may wonder uh, what Sun City Shadow Hills has in common with Bighorn. And uh, the answer is that we both do podcasts. Uh, I tend to do things in the community and all kinds of different things. The, the, the podcaster at Bighorn focuses on the stories of their residents. And um, I thought that, you know, that, that there are a lot of interesting stories here. Um, I don't know what your appetite is to hear about them, but we're going to try one today, and uh, I'd like to get your feedback on that. Sun City Podcasts at sunsityshadowhills.com. Uh, so my first guest is a resident who's been here for several years. His name is Barry Fisher. Barry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bob. So your journey, you were born on what turned out to be a pretty significant day, but a long time ago. Yes, I had the date first. It was, uh, for those of you who are counting, I was born on September 11th, 9-11, 1944. I just turned 79 years old, so you can, if you see me on the street, you can wish me a happy birthday, even though it's a little belated. Uh, Anyway, I, I started my uh, life in the Bronx in New York City. I grew up there with my, uh, my family, my younger brother, my parents, assorted uh, other relatives that lived with us. And I lived in New York City through college. I attended City College of New York, or CCNY, as some people may know, and studied chemistry. I uh, disappointed my mother terribly. She envisioned that I would become a doctor. Uh, She's a Jewish mother. Right? What else is there? Exactly. And um, I disappointed her greatly. I, I, biology didn't rock my boat, but I took my first chemistry class, and uh, that did it for me. I was in. I, I really liked it. But you had some other jobs before you got out of New York. Well, um, yes, I did. Um, my uh, family was uh, in the fishing business. My mother's brothers were both uh, uh, ran a uh, fishing boat out of the Bronx, the Bronx River, if you know your New York City geography. Uh, they took uh, people out either into the Long Island Sound or uh, off of the Jersey Shore to uh, fish. Uh, it was a fairly uh, busy business. The, 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 the second boat that they owned, uh, which was called the Ventura the Second, uh, little did I know I would be living near Ventura at one time, at, at a later date, but uh, that was an 85-foot boat, and on a busy weekend, we could have as many as 100-plus fishermen and fisherwomen uh, on board uh, trying to uh, catch as much as they could. And I worked on that for quite a few years uh, during high school and college summers. I was a deckhand. I uh, helped uh, people get set up, put on their hooks and sinkers, cut up bait, uh, help them land fish, 
and on the way back uh, would uh, clean them for them for tips. It was a fairly lucrative summer's job, but uh, exhausting because I would be getting up at the literally the crack of dawn, like 5 in the morning, 4.30, uh, go down. My uncle, one of my uncles would take me down to the boat. We would go out, and I would come home at the end of the day, usually around 7 at night, reeking from fish. <laughs> and all I wanted to do was to get into the shower and go to sleep until the next day. Uh, my uncle was really good to me. He gave me one day off a week, one day off every two weeks, and it was usually on a Wednesday. So uh, every summer I remember I would promise myself, this is it, I'm not doing it again. And my, <laughs> my mother would say, uh, your uncles need you. So uh, it, it kind of reminded me of Don Corleone, except this was a <laughs> Jewish version I know, of that. you couldn't refuse. <laughs> exactly, <huh>? exactly. <laughs> Well, so, uh, but you, you, uh, you finally uh, graduated from high school after you, you were a, uh, you had a musical background. Uh, that's being very charitable. <laughs> uh, um, my, my, my mother, rest her soul, was keen on me to get some culture and take up a musical instrument. Uh, fortunately, it wasn't drums or something like that. And I started off with a clarinet and eventually graduated to uh, a saxophone, which had the same fingering and uh, the same key. And uh, in junior high school and high school, I was in the school bands. I always like to say that uh, I, I attended uh, Christopher Columbus High School. By the way, today is Columbus Day or Native American Day, whichever you prefer. And uh, in honor of the name of our school, we were the uh, first high school band to march up Fifth Avenue during the annual Columbus Day uh, march that the city ran each year. And I would uh, kind of go along uh, with my heavy saxophone strapped around my neck, uh, playing various John Philip Sousa marches as we plodded along. I see. So after that, you first went to City College of New York. Yes. And um, you, you, you got a BS degree in chemistry. chemistry. Yes. Okay. And um, so th then what happened? Well, I decided, uh, most people realize that if you're in the, the sciences, you need to go on to graduate school to continue with your education beyond your bachelor's degree. And I recognize this. Uh, I was uh, hoping someday to get a PhD in chemistry. I applied to a number of schools and was accepted to Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana, uh, which was a culture shock because this is the first time I had been out of New York City. And um, uh, the, the Midwest was just a totally different beast that I was, uh, had been used to. So I was, uh, I was going along there. I had an advisor. I was doing my research and whatnot, uh, hoping at some point to get a PhD. And during the, uh, after the first year at Purdue, I went back home for the summer, uh, got a summer job. And uh, my roommate from Purdue 
who is a Brooklyn fellow, calls me up one day and he says, Barry, I have a, a favor to ask you. Uh, little did I know that this favor would change my entire life's trajectory. He said, I'm dating this, this lady uh, from uh, Queens, from Rockaway, Far Rockaway, New York, down by JFK Airport. And I'm looking for somebody to set up her girlfriend from Los Angeles who's visiting her. And I'm really desperate because I've tried all my friends in Brooklyn and Queens, and uh, there, there's nobody who's available. I realize it's a big stretch for you because geographically the Bronx and Far Rockaway, Queens, were uh, about as far away from each other in New York City that you can imagine. So I, uh, I sighed and I said, Sheldon, that was his name, I'll do you a favor. I'll do you a kindness. Uh, so I went out there. We, we went on a double date. Um, something happened. Uh, and uh, I've been married to this woman now come December, my wife Susan, for 55 years. So we're, we're, doing, uh, we're doing pretty well. But back in, at Purdue, I, I got back to my second year there. And my studies were literally going, circling the drain, going down the toilet. <laughs> because all I did was I was writing these mushy love letters every single day to my sweetie in Los Angeles instead of hitting the books. And this had a deleterious effect on the studies. Um, such So much so that my advisor called me in one day and he said, Barry, I'm, I'm sorry, you just don't have it. Uh, we'll let you go. And he used this, uh, it was a pejorative term that many academics <laughs> use. Uh, we'll, we'll let you go with the booby prize, meaning a master's degree. And I said to him, thank you, thank you, thank you, because I didn't want to have wasted two years of my life with nothing to show for it. So I quit Purdue, uh, headed out west, uh, moved into uh, Susan's house with her parents, and um, started to look for a job. However, before that, it turned out that one of the last classes I took in graduate school uh, for those masochists out there, a, a course in uh, nitrogen chemistry, uh, I got a D in it because my head was not really screwed on. And the wonderful professor uh, would not give me the courtesy of a C, and I needed a C to really graduate. <laughs> so I explained my situation to my, my advisor at Purdue, and he said, not a problem. Just find a class at UCLA or USC that's kind of like this, same level of difficulty, and get a passing grade and we'll take care of you. So I, was, I went to UCLA. I was very motivated. Um, I took a, uh, a fairly difficult course. It was in physical chemistry, and uh, I got an A. See what a little motivation will, will do for really? you. 
So at that point, I could start in earnest looking uh, for a job. Now, one of the challenges I had, uh, I guess most of the people in our audience remember this time in the, the 60s when they were uh, young men and women. This was during the Vietnam War. And I was all set to get myself drafted. Um, I had kind of resolved myself that uh, that was going to happen. And uh, I would go around looking for work, and that was a, uh, an impediment to finding jobs because uh, laboratories had, were not able to offer me a uh, deferment. And they knew that if they hired me, I would be in the wind, lickety-split. So I did get a job for a period of time at a clinical chemistry lab, which analyzed samples for ill people. The worst we had to do is uh, analyze feces for, <laughs> for lipids. We called it fecal fats. It was not very pleasant. Uh, and I was eager to find something. And I answered an ad from the California Human Resources Department, or whatever it was called. This guy calls me in, sits me down, and he says, um, I have a job you might be interested in. Did you ever see the TV show Perry Mason? I'm thinking, what in heaven's name is he talking about? He says, well, the um, Sheriff's Department, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, is desperate for people with chemistry degrees because they have a huge drug backlog that had to be tested. And I want to send you down for an interview. So I went downtown, interviewed for that position, and lo and behold, they hired me. I said to the person who offered me the job, I said, yeah, you know, I have a problem. I'm, I'm about to get drafted. And uh, he said, uh, don't, don't worry about it. We'll have the sheriff write a letter to your draft board. And uh, sure enough, I got a critical skills deferment. And I have to tell you, um, it, it, it bothers me a little bit today because I, I feel that uh, I really should have been over there. there. There's a slight tinge of guilt for not doing what I should have done like so many of my other friends had done. But uh, in, a, in a sense, I did my time. Okay. So you wound up starting uh, with the Sheriff's Department and in 1969? Yep, 1969. Cinco de Mayo was my, my first day on the job. It was um, another one of those culture shocks equal to Purdue University because attending uh, college, uh, I had little contact with law enforcement personnel, with, with <laughs> cops and such. And um, when I say uh, they see the world a little differently than young college students, that would be a serious understatement. Uh, we, we, we poked fun at one another. And, and as you can see, uh, sitting across from me, I still have a beard. I started to grow a beard back then to kind of uh, in their face because cops had to be clean shaven and... Mm -hmm. uh, this was my uh, little effort to uh, thumb my nose, so to speak, at them. 
but anyway, I, I started there in May of uh, 69, and uh, I guess that's where my story really begins. Okay. And uh, I'm sure that everyone remembers their first crime scene, but you had a really special one. Well, the way, the way it worked in our lab, when I started there, there were about a dozen chemists. The job title was criminalist. And in addition to working in the lab, testing evidence, going to court to testify, we, ought to, we also had to go out to crime scenes, uh, most often murder scenes, to assist detectives in uh, uh, processing the, the evidence. By the way, why did they want you to go to, the, to murder scenes? Well, these were a bit more complicated, and they wanted to have somebody with a science background to uh, survey the scene and to make uh, observations based on the sk skill set that we had that was different from uh, the cops. So that was the, the principal uh, reason. So the, for newbies in the laboratory, there was kind of an unwritten hazing that went on. Um, they try to gross you out, in other words, and send you to horrific uh, murder scenes. Uh, up, up to that point, I had never in my life seen a dead body, uh, natural, naturally dead or otherwise. And truth be told, I tried to keep a low profile that uh, every time a case came up, I, I found that I was terribly busy doing whatever. So one day my number was up and they, a couple of guys, uh, senior guys in my office latched onto me and despite my protestations that I was unavailable, they said we have to go to this, this crime scene. And it was in a, a middle class residential area down in Redondo Beach, California. And we drove, we drove down there, and I casually said uh, to one of them, uh, so what kind of cases uh, is this? What are we going to see? He says, oh, it's, it's an axe murder. He, he said it, it, it was just totally nonplus, you know, no emotion. It was just like uh, go to the store and get a container of milk sort of thing. So we get to the, uh, the scene, at this, and at this time uh, the, the sheriff... Uh, wanted to have everybody in ties and jackets in case the media was out there, so we made a good show, and we kept all of our uh, tools that we needed to collect evidence and attache cases. So the three of us uh, walk up to the front uh, door, and there was a crusty old homicide detective lieutenant there. His name was Dick Griffin. I remember Dick. And he, he was wearing a fedora, which was very fashionable for his age group. And he says, um, he looks at us up and down in, in a fairly close imitation of Jackie Gleason. He says, and what do we have here? It's just, he really put us down. So one of them said, well, we're from the crime lab and we're here to do our thing. And he told us, well, just go inside and find out, find the detectives involved, responsible for the case. So we walk in this hallway, and um, when I tell the story, I always recollect how time 
just slowed down for me. It was like slow motion. I, I was looking around, um, and I saw off in the corner of the living room this person who I first, th this body that I first thought was a mannequin. And uh, there, there was a uh, lamp that was knocked over. Uh, the lampshade was ajar, and it cast an eerie uh, glow in, onto the, the scene. And I'm, I'm, I'm surveying uh, this, this uh, scene. There was a lot of damage. There had been a struggle. Um, the, uh, there was blood and gore on the walls and whatnot. And I'm staring there, and I'm looking, and there's an axe, a roofing axe, stuck out of the head of this poor woman. And there were several cuts on the, uh, on the head, and I guess as he lifted the axe each time, he splattered some brain material, some brain tissue, on the adjacent wall. And, and I'm, I'm just looking at this in stark disbelief, because... I, I, I couldn't conceive of what I was looking at. It was so unnatural. It just, I, I couldn't believe it. And um, I took that image home with me, and it stuck with me for months. And I can easily dredge it up, yeah. even today, 50 years later, and I can picture the, the crime scene quite vividly. What, what happened was that this poor woman's teenage daughter came home from school and walked into the house and saw her mother on the floor, dead. And it must have been a horrific experience for this poor girl. This, this guy was a burglar. He used a roofing axe to gain entry into the house and must have surprised the, the woman and he murdered her. Um, I don't know whatever happened to that case, if they ever caught the guy, uh, if <laughs> went to trial. I, I just had At a... At any rate, I think we should move on. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> let's move on to your experience with TNT. <laughs> ah, yes, TNT. Um, I, I, for those listening, I'd give Bob a, a brief biography of some of my experiences, so he's... Uh, he knows my story probably better than I do. Uh, but anyway, I was, uh, I was in the lab now. I, I, I had graduated from my initial position of dealing with uh, toxicology, looking for drugs and blood and urine samples. <coughs> and I was in what we call the physical evidence section, which dealt with just about any type of evidence that would, be, would come around for uh, major crimes. And uh, periodically, we would get in sticks of dynamite into the laboratory. Uh, today, that would never happen. It, it would not be permitted. But back then, in the Wild West days, we would actually get uh, dynamite into the lab that was seized from some other crime or whatnot. And, and these were sticks, and they, they, the outside of them were oily because what dynamite was was nitroglycerin, kind of mixed in with sawdust as a binder. And the nitroglycerin was kind of oozing through the paper wrapping of the sticks of dynamite. And uh, this 
the supervisor there, who is an old hand at this, he says, come over here, guys. Let me show you how we do this. So he takes a scissors and he cuts open the stick of dynamite, takes some, a scoop or two of the sawdust saturated with nitroglycerin and puts it into a glass beaker, pours a chemical solvent in, petroleum ether, stirs it around, pours the mixture into a uh, funnel with filter paper so the liquid uh, comes out into another container. And then he, he pours some of this clear liquid onto a piece of filter paper about three inches in diameter. And here's how he tested it to see if it was dynamite. From under his desk, he pulls out a three-foot I-beam. And then he takes a sledgehammer, about three-pound sledge, holds the filter paper out in front of him with a pair of salad tongs. We were very scientific back then. And he gives the paper a couple of whacks. And a third whack, there's a little explosion. Fireball. He actually singed his eyeball, his eyebrows. And he turned around and he says, yep, it's TNT. And that was how, <laughs> at the time, we tested for nitroglycerin that came into the lab. Primitive. Uh, that's not done that way anymore. Effective, but uh, primitive. Okay, well, uh, Barry's got some other experiences that um, it, I think we'll skip over uh, in the interest of time. For those of you who watch Breaking Bad, uh, Walter White, one of his first episodes, did something with sulfuric acid that was similar to what Barry experienced in real life. Who knows? They might have gotten that idea from your actual story. But, um, you know, that it, I, let's talk about the McMartin preschool case and what, because what, you, you've had some pretty significant, um, what are your role changed uh, the, the way uh, sexual cases are uh, handled? There was a huge child abuse uh, investigation in Los Angeles at this little day school in Huntington Beach called the McMartin Day School. They had been in business for years. And the parents were starting to get uh, uh, strange stories from their kids. Uh, a couple of also, a couple of the kids actually came down with, uh, came home with urinary tract infections, which uh, pediatricians would tell you could be from a variety of things, including digital manipulation. I uh, guess the mom started to talk about this uh, one to another, and uh, they started to believe that there was some uh, shenanigans going on in the school other than teaching their children ABCs and whatnot. So they went to the police, and uh, the police began it began an investigation. And one of the stories that the kids told was that uh, the teachers there uh, were having the children run around naked and they would touch them inappropriately. And supposedly uh, a teacher said that if you ever tell your parents what's going on here, 
we're we're going to uh, do some terrible things. And to prove their point, uh, this kid said that they uh, slit a bunny's throat in front of them to kind of scare the daylights out of them. This was true. I certainly would have been frightened. So the parents were really really at wit's end, and they were tired of the way the authorities were uh, slow-walking this investigation. They were were not doing it that quickly. So one evening, one Saturday, they hire a backhoe to start to dig up the adjacent lots, the the lot next to the school, in hopes of finding some evidence of uh, animals that may have been dumped in the lot. Uh, Sure enough, they come up with the skeletal remains of a desert tortoise. Uh, Oh my goodness, of course the press is out there filming this, and they show this desert tortoise, the the, the shell was about 10 inches across on top, um, this is all over the, the news. The police come in and seal off the crime scene. I'm at home minding my own business. It must have been eight or nine at night. And my boss calls up and he says, the sheriff wants you out there tomorrow morning, first thing, with a team of people to excavate this lot. And whatever you do, don't F it up. And you probably know what I mean by that. So the next day we go out there and we have a half a dozen people from the lab ready to do our thing and we start poking around looking for clues. And I'm looking at the, the perimeter of this lot. It's kind of an L-shaped perimeter. It happened to be St. Patrick's Day and on a Sunday and people had nothing better to do so they showed up in their lawn chairs, their picnic baskets, their coolers, their umbrellas, and their, this was their Sunday morning entertainment to watch us excavate a lot. And of course the news media is out there listening in to what we're saying. And I finally realized that we didn't know what the heck we were doing, so I went up to the uh, investigator in charge and I said, we don't know what the hell we're doing. You need to get hold of one of these local universities that has an archaeology department that is used to digging up remains and get them out there to do this job properly because we're going to be excoriated if we screw this up in court. So he does this. They, the county, L.A. County, spent about $25,000 to bring in a... Uh, a firm, a university there to do the job. They didn't find very much of anything. Went to trial, and after the trial, turns out that when they went back and talked to some of the people in the neighborhood, this was the neighborhood's pet cemetery, that when people's pets passed into pet land in the far beyond, they would bury their dogs, their cats, their turtles and whatnot, in this piece of uh, undeveloped land. And so we we found this tortoise there. No idea of whether or not it had anything to do with the McMartin case or just a 
a natural death? Well, I, in, in 40 years, you've got lots and lots of stories. But let, let's back, let, let's, let's go up a little bit. And, and what, what is the purpose of a crime lab? Why do they bring you in? And, you know, how does, how does that all work? Well, there are some, off the top of my head, around 600 crime labs, state and local laboratories across the country in police departments, sheriff's offices, district attorney's office, state police, attorney general's office. And then on top of that, you have the federal laboratories, the FBI, the Drug Enforcement Administration, uh, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, and and others. Uh, The purpose of uh, crime labs is to bring in subject matter experts in science, typically in chemistry and biology, to look at evidence that are collected at crime scenes and try to make some sense of it and provide assistance to the police in the investigation. And in many cases, it results in uh, clearing the individual who is first believed to be uh, a subject in in a particular case. Uh, we, We test for all sorts of different things. Uh, uh, The most sophisticated these days is DNA testing, uh, firearms examination, bullets and uh, shell casings, uh, hairs and fibers and soil and glass and paint. Of course, drugs of every imaginable type. Uh, We have a a, a pretty big business in DUI cases, people who are arrested for drunk drunken driving or driving under the influence of drugs to test their bodily fluids, their bloods or or urine samples uh, to see if they were under the influence when they were driving. It's a whole potpourri of different types of materials that could be tested. And um, after the testing has been done, if it's uh, material information, by that, if it if it can be used by the uh, the police to further their investigation, it gets sent over to the prosecutor's office, and more often than not, uh, we have to go to court and, and testify. And I, uh, during my career, I've testified in hundreds of various types of cases, from mm-hmm. DUI cases to uh, uh, terrible murder cases mm-hmm. and things in between. Well, one of the reasons that I thought you would be a great subject is um, the public's fascination with crime scene investigations. Uh, The show CSI has uh, run for 16 seasons and had 335 different episodes. So clearly there is an appetite out out amongst the... uh, population for this kind of uh, uh, story. Now, you were a professional. You actually did this stuff. From your standpoint, how real are, are those shows? And what, what, what parts of it, the investigations, makes your skin crawl? Uh, before I answer that, let me just back up a tad. When CSI was first getting started, when the, uh, they, they had the pilot, uh, the writers and producers came down to the laboratory 
Uh, they wanted to see a real live, I don't know if that makes any sense, a real laboratory. So I showed them around. Uh, they, they were very interested and impressed. And one of them says to me, you know, we're just getting started with this program. We, we haven't optioned it or anything yet. And um, we could really use a consultant, somebody knew, who knew what was going on. Is this something you might be interested in? And I'm thinking to myself, this guy is nuts. This Orville, this will never fly. And I said it nicely, and I was wrong. <laughs> Did they offer you a salary range to no, uh, be no, a consultant? No, it was just to see if I was interested. Mm -hmm. They but never got that far. We never got that far. But they wound up hiring a half a dozen people from my lab who yeah. did take jobs on uh, the original show on Miami and New York and whatnot. Uh, and they, many of them did pretty well on that uh, thing. But uh, for whatever reason, I, I, t I turned them down. But in answer to your question... You have to realize that uh, there, there are a couple of things going on for people who watch this stuff. Uh, first of all, there's a morbid curiosity to, to understand what goes on in these police procedural uh, types of cases. Uh, the other thing is that there has to be a decent storyline. If it's a, uh, a yawn, a boring storyline, uh, it's not going to fly. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many hours I would spend with my eyes looking through a microscope, uh, it, it was not an exciting, thrilling experience. Uh, so you have to come to a resolution that's satisfying to the public either in a half hour or an hour, depending on how long the, uh, the show is. The, the show is loosely based on fact, but for anybody in the uh, business, it's total unequivocal, bull, shit, shit. Got it, <laughs> got it. Uh, yeah, there, there, were, there, was one, there was one episode that they had where, where this guy was stabbed with an ice pick. Uh, no, with, a, with a, an icicle, rather. And they showed in the, in, the, in the show the coroner, the medical examiner, pouring some molding material into the wound and pulling it out and said, this is what the murder weapon looks like. Absurd. It would, <laughs> it, it can't work. It doesn't work. It's impossible. Um, the, the other thing that's impossible is that they are solving a case in an hour less the time for commercials. Yeah, 40 minutes, actually. 40 minutes. No cases. A quick case would be a month, mm -hmm. maybe longer. Mm -hmm. Some of these cases can last for years. Yeah. So. Well, it, and 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 so the, the, there's clearly a morbid side to this. There's a chemistry side to it. But it, it, it this is but this held your interest for forty years, and your son followed you into the business. What do you think attracted him into the business? Well, when, uh, when he was in high school, we took him to a conference. It was an international conference in Germany. 
So I went around looking, listening to talks and looking at uh, uh, papers and uh, presentations and whatnot. And he, he was always interested. He, he went to UC San Diego, and he, he was always interested in science. He graduated with a degree in biochemistry. And when he graduated, he says to me, Dad, what, what do you think I ought to be doing? What, what, should, what should I do? So I said to him, you know, uh, the line of work that I am in is really interesting. First of all, know this for a fact, you will never be rich. You know, you're going to be a public servant and making a comfortable salary, but you're never going to be a millionaire or a wealthy person. Uh, on the other side, anytime you go into a room in a social event and you, peop you tell people what you do, <laughs> Uh, the room is going to grow silent, and everybody's going to want to know what was the most interesting case you ever worked on, or what are you working on now? So with, with that in mind, he he followed his then-girlfriend. He, he didn't, didn't turn out that way, but he followed his then-girlfriend who uh, went to, was going to graduate school in New York City, and there's a, a pretty decent graduate program in forensic science at John Jay College, which is part of university, uh, City University. And he's working there, and he took a volunteer job at the New York City Medical Examiner's Office. They have a large DNA lab there. And 9-11 hits, and they're using their volunteer labor to help with uh, uh, recovering remains and uh, doing some very rudimentary laboratory work to try to identify the victims of 9-11, my birthday, by the way, uh, the, um, turned out to be a job for him. Mm -hmm. So he worked, he worked for the city of New York, for the medical examiner's DNA lab, for about 20 years, and eventually got tired of the New York City politics. And like any municipality, there are plenty of politics. And he answered in a job an ad for a job in New Jersey where he actually lived at the New Jersey Institute of Technology, NJIT, which I had never heard of, but which has been in a public university for about 150 years. They were starting a, uh, an undergraduate forensic science program. So he applied and he was hired. Um, along with all this, uh, Back while I'm working full-time, I had uh, written or co-written uh, a number of uh, three books, actually. And I decided uh, to uh, do some uh, joint writing with him on the latest editions. So we have this uh, one book out. You can check it out on Amazon if you like. It's called Techniques of Crime Scene Investigation. It's now in its ninth edition. This is a, uh, a shameless plug. Um, and you'll see the authors are uh, Barry A.J. Fisher, that's me, and my offspring, David R. Fisher, hmm. as co-authors. Pretty cool. So. Pretty cool to write a co-write a book with your son. Well, I don't follow this stuff too closely, but I am amazed when I read the stories of cold cases that were of crimes that were committed 15 years ago that all of a sudden they're able to solve 
with because of DNA evidence. Could you talk a little bit about that and, and, and where this is going? DNA has been a game changer in the area of uh, police investigations. Um, any type of violent crime, there's all kinds of biological fluids left behind. Blood, seminal fluid, um, even perspiration on clothing, uh, just what have you. Uh, coincidentally, you can also get uh, do blood typing on earwax if you were interested in that. Um, up until the uh, 90s, uh, the technology was not terribly great, and you could only get it uh, down to maybe one person in a thousand, one person in five thousand. So if you're in a in, in a large municipality, well, even here in in the Coachella Valley, you know, there's a few hundred thousand people living here. If if, if you're able to limit it down to maybe uh, Ten percent of the population—that's still a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, fingerprints up to that point was the the straightforward way of really focusing in on a single uh, investigation, a single person who might be responsible. DNA came uh, about. It was originally started in a, uh, came to light in England, uh, crossed the the pond into the United States, developed into a very robust uh, testing procedure. The FBI started up a national DNA uh, database, uh, which contains the DNA re uh, test results of uh, criminals. And uh, that's been used for quite some time to identify individuals. Uh, more recently, there's been a melding of uh, the use of uh, genetic genealogy with forensic DNA testing. And, you know, we, we have here at uh, Sun City Shadow Hills a genealogy club, and they're, mm -hmm. they're, they know about uh, sending in samples to have your DNA tested and match it up with uh, family members you knew nothing about. And the, the police have begun to use this very technology to locate people who are not present in the government's criminal database. Uh, it was a huge case uh, just recently, in the last couple of years, called the Golden State Killer. He was a uh, actually a retired police officer who murdered quite a number of people. It was never, they, they had DNA that they collected from these murders, but there was nothing to match it to. They, they would come up uh, empty-handed. So apparently uh, one of the detectives had a friend who was into uh, genealogy and all this DNA stuff and asked if it was possible to try to use this. And a number of these uh, DNA companies are kind of open to the public uh, they're able to, you're able to check a sample against their holdings. And rather than getting a direct hit with an individual, you can get hits on possible close family members, parents, siblings, and whatnot. And that's exactly what happened in this case. They, mm -hmm. 
they found a close family member to this uh, individual. Uh, they began to shadow him, and they followed him into, I'm assuming it was like a Starbucks, and they fished out of the waste a coffee cup that he had drunk from and got DNA testing off of the uh, lip of the coffee uh, mug and was able to were able to get a hit wow. for all these cases. But the the way that they came in to focus this person was kind of a, a roundabout sort of way. And, and this, this technology is being used uh, to a greater and greater extent uh, because it is very effective and I it works. Say so. uh, the challenge, of course, is that there are a lot of people out there who worry about the government yeah. having an idea of what your genetic profile is. Mm -hmm. uh, they, 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 you know, they, yeah, nothing worried. is private. If <laughs> they, they just worry about it. And, yeah. and uh, even if I tell you, well, there's nothing to be concerned about. Uh, if, unless you're unless you're a murderer, then you might be a little worried. But you know, when, if if you go for your driver's license, you have to give a fingerprint. If you're uh, teaching, if you're a teacher, you have to send and submit your fingerprints. All of these various data types are are currently out there. This is just another source to help the police solve crimes. Yeah. And I think that's a a good thing for the public to have some level of confidence in that they can be assured that uh, the, the police, if there's sufficient evidence, are going to uh, solve crimes and at the same time even exonerate innocent people. Yeah, yeah. Well, Barry, thank you for coming in and telling us your story. I'm sure if, you know, to the audience, if you have questions of Barry that I didn't think to ask, uh, send them in to podcast at Sun City Shadow Hills, and I will forward them to him, and uh, he can respond to you directly. And as I said in the beginning, I, there's a lot of people here with a lot of interesting stories. And uh, if you're interested in hearing more of these, uh, please let us know. And uh, if the demand is there, we will have more interesting people in. And Barry, in the meantime, Barry, thank you for taking the time and sharing your story. And to the audience, uh, thank you for your attention. Until next time, bye-bye.